This is the Christian Heritage London podcast from London. My name is Amy Wicks. It's a real privilege to um, welcome you to the book launch of Are You 100% Sure You Want to Be an Agnostic? by Andrew Satch and Jonathan Gemmell. Um, so very exciting. <laughs> We're going to hear from some really interesting people um, thinking about uh, things to do with this book. So it's my real pleasure to invite Andrew Satch up here. Um. Thanks, Amy. I'm just going to share a few of my favourite bits of the book in case you don't read it, so you can hear a few of them now. And um, a couple of them touch on my co-author John and one of them that touches on you as Scottish people. So we begin by saying that the word agnostic, it comes from the Greek word gnosis, meaning knowledge, and you put an A on the front of it, and it means not. So, for example, um, you say something is atypical when it's not typical, or it's asymmetrical when it's not symmetrical. Uh, you could describe someone who doesn't like bagpipes as being a-Scottish. Um, if, if gnosis is about knowing and knowledge, then agnosticism is just about not knowing. But as um, Andy's already hinted at, there are different kinds of agnosticism. There's different ways in which you can not know things. So, for example, I could say that I'm agnostic about the neurological basis of ventriloquism, whether what you see with your eyes affects where you think something's coming from with your ears. And actually, I did a PhD in that kind of area about over 20 years ago, and I read an interesting paper in 1994 published on that subject, but I haven't kept up with the research. I don't know what they found out since, and so I'm agnostic. It would be possible to know. Um, I could just do some reading, but I haven't done the reading, and so I don't know. In a similar way, John writes in the book that he is agnostic about how many helium balloons it would take for alien to fly. But because alien is wary of heights, it didn't seem very kind to find out. It would be a quite simple experiment, But you cannot know just because you haven't checked. And I guess a lot of people are agnostic about Jesus just because they've never checked. And they've never looked into it. They could easily find out. And the second kind of agnosticism, though, is a bit more of an entrenched thing. So rather than, I don't know, this kind of agnostic is saying, you can't know. You know, philosophically, it wouldn't be possible to know. But there's actually an awkward irony here because actually that kind of person isn't very agnostic about their own position. They're actually saying, I know that you can't know. Like, how do you know that? What makes them so sure that they can't be sure? And when you think about it, um, you realize that 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 kind of certainty about not being able to know things, it requires you to actually know everything. So, for example, if I were to say, I know that there is no treasure hidden in Edinburgh. I mean, like, how, how would you know that? You'd, you'd have to have, you know, dug everywhere. What if there was some treasure hidden under an inconspicuous cabbage field on the outskirts of the city? Or what if there was a diamond necklace hidden in a detergent bottle at a postcode that the police hadn't checked? Um, let's face it, the University of Leicester archaeological services do more digging than the rest of us. They didn't even know until recently that the bones of King Richard III were under their local car park. I mean, to, to say that you're sure that you can't know something is tantamount to absolute knowledge of everything. It's actually an absurd position. But I think most people actually aren't either of those kinds of agnostic. It's not so much, um, I don't know because I haven't looked into it, It's not so much I can't know, 
it's more, to be honest, I don't really want to know. Would you leave me alone? And people have figured out, I think my friends have figured out, that to be agnostic is the best way to keep an evangelist at bay. It's like a kind of philosophical handbrake that you put on to avoid being budged from the status quo. And the question then isn't just so much sort of what evidence would convince someone, but why is someone so wary of Jesus that they want to keep him at arm's length? And I think it's because of the idea that Christianity would suck all the joy out of your life if you were to follow Jesus. Um, A friend of mine describes being quite surprised that Jesus could turn water into wine. Um, but it, it wasn't the, the miracle that um, was, you know, just by itself impressed him. I mean, by the way, I haven't done the same miracle because this is quite poisonous if I drunk it. But, <laughs> but um, for Jesus to, you know, to, it's not just that you can't do C2, uh, H2O to C2H5OH in the laboratory, but all the complex wine chemistry, the vanillins and the flavanols and everything, you just can't do it in a laboratory. But for him, the surprising thing was that Jesus wasn't going around turning wine into water. You know, his view was that God was such a killjoy that his greatest fear was that someone somewhere might be enjoying themselves and he'd have to stamp it out. You know, if Christianity had a colour, it would be grey. If you could sum up Christian ethics in a word, it would be don't. Um, If you could sum up a Christian party, it would be slur. (laughs) That was deliberate, by the way. What one of my friends called a Christian champagne. Um, uh, the idea for a Christian night in would be back-to-back copies of Songs of Praise on VHS. And that's why the British Human Society some years ago um, paid a hundred grand or so to put um, posters on the side of buses saying, there's probably no God, so just relax and enjoy life. Um, but what actually if that's so much fake news? What actually if knowing God is the key to joy? and fulfilment, and life, and purpose, and love. And so I think we've got to convince people not only that Christianity is true, but that it's good, and that they don't need to use agnosticism as a kind of way of keeping it at arm's length. Then, of course, the question is, is it true? And my favourite slightly cheeky comment by John in the book is that um, we work together down in London in offices next to each other. And John writes in the book that... Um, he came to a conclusion about my non-divinity quite early on. He says, I was unable to complete even some quite basic tasks. <laughs> Thanks, John. Um, but that's the point, isn't it? Like, I mean, obviously, I'm not God. You, you figured that out. Did I have only been here a day in Glasgow? You already know I'm not God. But just imagine, here is John, the apostle. Here's Peter. Here's Matthew. And they, they spend three years of their life with Jesus. And at the end of it, they're not agnostic about him. Like, what would it take to persuade you that your best friend who you met and spent time with was the creator of the universe? It would take some evidence and integrity and consistency. And, and of course, that's what they saw. And you know, as Christians, we want to introduce people to the, um, the amazing truth of Jesus as he was met by people who were sure about it. John writes about that which we've seen and heard, which we've touched with our hands. We write this to make our joy complete. Thanks for coming today, and thanks for for listening to this. For more episodes of the Christian Heritage London podcast, 
And for information on Christian Heritage London events, tours and walks, please go to christianheritagelondon.org.